Today, I'm speaking with Yaakov Katz, who has been the editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post newspaper for the past seven years and put out his final issue at the end of March. Katz is a prolific author as well, focusing on niche developments in Israel's defense capability. And he worked as a close aide to former Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, back in the day when Bennett was a breakout political superstar, serving in the cabinet of Prime Minister Netanyahu. Few North American immigrants have seen the inside of Israeli politics and media up close and unfiltered, like Yaakov Katz has. He's been in the room, so to speak, and shares his insights from the last two decades in a fascinating discussion about what really goes down in Israeli politics. Stay with us. This is the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond, the podcast that brings you the straight-up, unfiltered story. What's really going down in Israel? Politics, economics, religion and state, lots of conflict. I'm your host, Vivian Berkovich, former Canadian ambassador to Israel. We're on the street with the folks who live here and have skin in the game. Yalla, let's dive in. One month ago, on May 10th, I met with Yaakov Katz at his home in Jerusalem to discuss his seven-year tenure as editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post, his thoughts on various pressing issues and plans for the future. I had intended on issuing this podcast within days of our meeting, but then my own life went a little topsy-turvy. My mother, just days away from her 95th birthday, passed away in Toronto in mid-May. Of course, I flew back and spent several weeks in my hometown, even allowing myself to unplug, hence the delay in sharing this interview with you. Most of our discussion, thankfully, was not time-sensitive. The bits that were ended up on the cutting room floor, so to speak. Now, back to Yaakov. A father of four, and really all-round lovely person, Yaakov is a raconteur par excellence, and he never runs out of stories. It was great to catch up and have the opportunity to hear his thoughts on the complex relationship between Prime Minister Netanyahu and former Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, the judicial reform juggernaut currently dogging the Israeli government, and society, and more. In fact, our discussion went on for so long that I had to be tough on the edit. In order to keep the podcast to a reasonable length, I've edited myself out mercilessly, so you can hear mostly from Yaakov. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think that 35 to 45 minutes maximum works for a podcast episode. So, here goes. Good morning, Yaakov. So nice to see you. Hey, Vivian. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm well, thanks. You look great. You look relaxed. You look happy. I feel good. (laughs) (laughs) To to have a load off your shoulders is is a good feeling sometimes. How long has it been now since you stepped down from the Jerusalem Post? Just about... Five and a half, six weeks. Not that I'm counting the days. I first met Yaakov shortly after I arrived in Israel in January 2014, the newly appointed Canadian ambassador to the country. He was working as a senior aide to the then up-and-coming political star, Naftali Bennett. Both spoke flawless English, were friendly, and seemed to lack the arrogance and affectations that tend to set in after too much time in political life. They were both engaging accessible, and bright. Katz had just returned from a year at Harvard University on a Neiman Fellowship. Before that, he had worked at the Jerusalem Post for a decade, 
working his way up from copy editor to police beat to political writer. I learned when we met in May that he had a law degree as well, but never practiced. Smart guy. Upon his return from Harvard, the offer to work with Minister Bennett in 2013 was alluring, and cats jumped. I can totally relate. For anyone interested in political life, a short stint working in the system is invaluable. You get an unparalleled immersion in how the system, any system, works and does not work. Whatever cynical doubts one may have had regarding political life before such an experience is invariably compounded after exposure to real life in the political mosh pit, as I call it. This, too, was Yako's takeaway. What Katz found when doing this work, as did I when I was in a similar position in Canada in my early 30s, is that you come to understand and decipher policy and political outcomes on a different level. It's like learning a different language. 100%. And you really know people. And also it gives you, I mean, it gives you a whole other network of people, totally. right? Which, which serves you in so many other ways. I would even, I would say every journalist should do that, right? The, the problem, of course, is that it plays with your objectivity and that's the risk you're going to run. Like if every journalist starts to work for a politician at some point, can you trust the journalist? And when I took over as editor, there was some suspicion of, you know, what, how I would be towards this specific politician. What Yakov did, moving from journalism to political aid and then back to journalism, represents a seismic shift in media culture in the last 30 years. Such movement in and out of politics and journalism, or lobbying, has become the norm in the last few decades. 30 years ago, it was a one-way street. If a journalist went to the dark side, they could never come back, because they were seen to be tainted and compromised, forever. Things are much looser these days. And keep in mind, Cax was a senior aide to the man who went on to become prime minister. This, while Katz was editor-in-chief of what is arguably the most influential and widely read English-language newspaper in Israel and internationally. I happen to think the world of his work and find it remarkable how rigorously he checked any affiliation or friendliness he may have felt towards Naftali Bennett, because it sure didn't show in the paper or in his often biting weekly column. He took no prisoners. He also shared a fascinating insight into the moment when Prime Minister Bennett, as he was then, finally, after almost 20 years of working closely with Benjamin Netanyahu, had a critical epiphany. I'll tell you a good story. I think, I think it's a good story. For, I mean, first, you know, let, let's remember who Naftali Bennett was and Naftali Bennett's main partner. This is, right, they, they, they came into office. He took over the, the National Religious Party in 2012, 2013. He came into the Knesset. His, his right hand was Ayala Chakade who served at some point as justice minister, interior minister. She's now out of politics. Well, I don't know. She's out of politics. She's out of office. She's out of office. Yes, better. Thank you. Yeah. Same with him. But they were this powerhouse couple. And they got 12 seats, I think it was, in the 2013 election. I joined them at the end of that year when I came back to Israel. And they were the hottest thing. People were talking about these guys, him as a future prime minister. No one knew it would happen the way it did eventually. But they had both worked for Prime Minister Netanyahu. Ayala Chakade in 2005-06 was like his assistant. She brought in Bennett, who was a high-tech, successful high-tech entrepreneur, and he became the chief of staff. Even though they were both badly burned, and this is a widely known story by Netanyahu and his wife, Sarah, they were like the biggest fan club of Netanyahu. And we'd be sitting in meetings, 
And you would have a something about Netanyahu and how he's again doing something politically that's undermining them and throwing them to the dogs. And they couldn't bring themselves to do what they needed to do as, as politicians would do, right? And, and stand up to the guy. Uh, that was just very interesting. It, years later, years later, around the time of one of the elections, I'm sitting, I'm home late at night, sitting here in the corner by some of the books. He calls me at some point, you know, I'm already the editor for a bunch of years. And he calls me and says, you know, I finally figured it out. Like, I finally understand he's, he's not the best of guys. And I'm like, welcome to the club. And that led him. And then eventually he stood up to Netanyahu and formed that government that was formed. Right. So I'd said to him, well, you know, welcome to the club, right? This, this was yeah, about yeah. time for you to realize this, but it took a while. There was some crazy stuff and it was just, Netanyahu, by the way, I've heard from other people who work, have worked for him. He, d- he has this hold on people who, who have worked for him that it's, it's hard for them to break out of the awe of the person. And by the way, listen, we both know what an, what an impressive, prestigious, charismatic, and, and powerful person and, and personality he is. The, the depth that he has, which is unparalleled yeah. on the Israeli political landscape, the ability to think five, six steps ahead of everybody else. You know, it's, it's remarkable. I, I, After two years working with Bennett, Katz returned to his calling and passion, as he puts it, writing and telling stories in print and podcast. I wanted to come back and do what I, my passion was, which is writing and storytelling and talking about the issues that I care about. That was my motivation. And when I came back, though, there were other things that quickly became apparent of goals that I set for myself that I wanted to achieve. For example? The Jerusalem Post, like many other legacy newspapers, right? we've been around since 1932. So th- this we just marked 90 years of, of writing about Israel in a daily newspaper. A lot of legacy papers have that difficulty of making the transition from print culture to digital first. When I came in, I felt that we were we were lagging behind where we pretend we should have been at that point. I agree with you. Yeah. And I think a lot of people agreed. And that was my number one objective was how can I turn the ship around? Right. Not easy when you're when your staff is just not there, right? It's in, you know, you can change everyone, but even the DNA of the organization is still very focused. The other problem that you have is you're always as a as a as a newspaper with a website or a website with a newspaper. Your, your, where do you put your focus? As with any regime change, Katz encountered resistance to some of his innovations, whether administrative or editorial. But he is tenacious and charming, and staying in such a demanding, intense job for seven years says all you need to know. He absolutely left his imprint and also understood when it was time to move on. Foremost on his to-do goals from day one was to rebrand the paper. He felt it had come to be perceived as representing a hard right point of view, and he set out to bring in new writers, columnists, and perspectives to freshen things up a bit. I wanted our content to be sharper and not to be telling the stories of what happened yesterday, but to be telling the stories of what's going to happen tomorrow mm-hmm. and to take a, create a more unique voice, right? Not just to be a cheerleader for the Israeli government. We're not a Hasbara tool. We are a newspaper that needs to hold our leaders accountable and be critical. And that, that's, I felt that our voice needed a little sharpening. And the last thing was just branding. You know, we, we need to be out there. We needed to be in, 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 
conferences and, and in the public's eye and on TV and on radio and I right. writing books. I pushed my staff all the time to do all those things. Yeah. And you pushed yourself too. And I pushed myself. Yeah. I wanted to, I guess part of the rebrand yeah. was I felt that we weren't just right wing. We were in the far right camp. And that had to do with a number of columnists that were writing for the Jerusalem Post without getting into specific names. Although we could, if we really want to. No, no. But I mean, Caroline Glick is just one example of a very larger than life character, but who dominated the voice of the newspaper. It, right. Which was not necessary and, and for some reason was completely exaggerated. But right. that but that's what had happened. And I and I think that there were other people as well, but but overall, what that did was it made it seem like the Jerusalem Post was some right wing far-right newspaper. We weren't. And what I tried to do, so what I did was I came up with the strategy, okay, to break or to balance it out, we ha- I need to bring in voices that are also on the crazy left. And I need to somehow move around all the time and become, like you said, unpredictable. And I think that, that, by the way, I think that's the Israeli center. I believe that I'm really in the center. I think there are topics that I can be very right-wing about, and there are topics that I can be very left-wing about. The personal dilemma of Yaakov Katz has become somewhat universal in recent years. Political life and discourse have become polarized and often vicious. There is an urgency to categorize everything and everyone, often in extreme ways. I love to point out that in Canada, I'm considered to be a right-wing extremist. I'm not. And in Israel, I'm officially a leftist anarchist. I'm not. The quality of discussion on important issues everywhere, it seems, has become so debased and caricature-like. Reality is far grayer and messier, and Yaakov Katz, like so many, had to wrestle with that fact, except as an editor. And it's confusing, and you're asking questions. It's not the black and white world of the far right or the far left. It makes life more interesting. It's hard to do that as a newspaper, because we took a very critical stance on Netanyahu and the corruption charges. But and I would get slammed for being left-wing. And I would say to people, but did you ask me about Judea and Samaria and the West Bank? Thanks for tuning in to the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond podcast. If you enjoy our work, please rate us. Review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, our Substack page, which is stateoftelaviv.com. That's stateoftelaviv, all one word, dot com. Whatever works. Your thumbs up makes a huge difference. For real. Thank you so much for your support. Now, back to the podcast. These days, the government's judicial reform legislation is among the top issues of concern for every Israeli, dominating politics since January. The coalition government and its supporters demonize anyone who dares to speak against or criticize the judicial reform legislation as being a left-wing anarchist. The label is so beyond silly, being slapped onto a range of Israelis and public figures who are anything but leftists. Like former Minister of Defense and IDF Chief of Staff, Bogi Alon, or all former governors of the Bank of Israel, including the current J.P. Morgan Chase International Chairman, Jacob Frankel, and many, many more. As it turns out, Yaakov Katz is in the leftist anarchist camp as well. 
And, as do I, he finds the tendency to be so black and white in political discourse to be destructive and dangerous. Personally, I have long believed, and I've writ- I wrote this years ago, before all this reform craziness came into our lives, take the Judicial Appointments Committee. I- I've always had a problem with that. Less because of the judges appointing the judges, but I have issues with that too. Right. But the, the lack of transparency and accountability, it's like this closed door room where we have no idea of what, what is going on there, what the considerations are, why this person was chosen over that person. There's no transcript. There's no live feed like other Knesset committees like C-SPAN. We know nothing. And that's undemocratic, right, in my view. So I've long rallied against that from, a, from the perspective of the public is the sovereign and we should know what is going on in this room, right? So that's just, that's just one example. Exactly. Who knows what they would pass tomorrow? And then to say that the court can't review that is extremely problematic, 100%. I totally agree with you. The way I look at it, though, of all of the pieces, because there's a number of components, right? And here's what I think people need to realize to a large extent is you could slice this thing a million different ways to Sunday, right? Okay. Whether it's on the Judicial Appointments Committee, how you do it, whether it's on the override bill, how many, what's the percentage, what's the number, simple majority, supermajority percentage, the opposition, there's a million ways to look at it. Yeah. The issue is, is that when they took it all at once and wanted to do everything in the way that they want to do it, majority on the Judicial Appointments Committee for the coalition, simple majority for the override bill. A law that would be passed that would allow them to make laws, legislation immune to review by the high court. Right. Changing legal advisors. All of these things, each one on their own, maybe has merit. Altogether, takes Israel from being a liberal democracy to potentially a totalitarian democracy or authoritarian democracy. And, and that is something that I'm against. Because uh, only because we would still, I guess, until they take that away, yeah. we would still vote to an extent, right? So we would still have an election. Oh, who knows what's coming? But assuming we can still vote, yeah, yeah. then we're still something of a democracy. I'll tell you something. You know, we spoke before about Netanyahu and his brilliance. Yeah, yeah. His prom- what happened here? They, they, he, he, he didn't see it coming. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't know what was happening. I, my read of this, because it's, it's not like him. This right. is the guy who usually sees 10 steps ahead. Not who gets blindsided like this. So I think I think there were two or three things that happened here. The first was they totally missed the 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 writing on the wall of how the Israeli electorate, definitely the center left, would not stand for this. That's number one. Number two, in that proper planning could have maybe given them a better pulse of the nation. Number right. two was that I think there were parts of his coalition, primarily Justice Minister Yuri Levine, members of the ultra-Orthodox parties, and well as Bissal Smutrich's National Religious Party. Mm-hmm the Religious Zionist Party, and Simcha Rotman, who's running the, the law committee, yeah. they identified weakness in Netanyahu because of his ongoing trial of corruption charges, right. because he's so dependent on them for survival that they could take advantage of it and they thought they could hammer it and plot forward. The third is that the whole process was tainted from the beginning. Why? Like you said, you're, you're going to do, you're going to make a massive, significant historic change for the state of Israel. Now, if you're a smart politician, you really care about the cause, you want it to last, right? You're not just doing it for the next two years until the next election so the next guy can overturn it and go back, or, right? So you want it to last. What's the best way to do that? Bring everyone together. Do it, do it together with the opposition. The opposition recognizes that change is required, but do, do it the right way, the sincere way. This wasn't done sincerely because 
I think that when we look at Netanyahu, for all the credit that he deserves, one of the things was that he always protected the courts. There are videos we could go back to, not yeah. from that many years ago, where he said, I, the independence of the Supreme Court is a vital asset for the foundation of the state of Israel. What changed? One thing. His personal circumstances right. and the fact that his coalition pushed him into the corner. So the whole process from the get-go was tainted as just a bad process. And, and I think it could have been done better. There's no question that it could have been handled better, far better. In the early days, one particular incident set off a national maelstrom, about which it turns out Katz knows a fair bit. In early February, just as Israelis were given the opportunity to read and digest the proposed judicial reform legislation, concerns spiked that, if passed as drafted, liberal democracy in the country would be threatened. What exactly happened? A group of 37 Air Force pilots issued a statement that they were going to skip one of approximately 60 days of reserve duty that they do each year. When they leave their work, families, and civilian lives to do their duty for the country. It was a symbolic gesture, but one that the coalition government seized upon. The fighter pilots, the heroes of Israel, were, and still are, demonized by Prime Minister Netanyahu and his supporters as being salvanim in Hebrew, which translates to resistors, more or less, in English. Salvanim. When Haredi political leaders throw such a slur and Israel's fighter pilots, that is incomprehensible audacity. The ultra-Orthodox community supports blanket draft and service dodging for all members of their communities, but dare to denigrate those who keep this country safe and secure physically. And of course, other members of the coalition government joined the pylon, among them extreme right-wing religious Zionist leaders, Etamar Bengvir, Betzalel Smotrich, and their parties. Many among them also never served in the army. Salvanim. That was like tossing a grenade into the heart of the nation. It was just too much. As it turns out, Yaakov Katz knows many of these fighter pilots personally, having met them when researching one of his books, as he tells it. You know, do you remember the first pilots? Yeah, yeah, of course. came out? The 37 the reservists and said, we're not sure we could continue to serve in the reserves. They came from a squadron called the 69th Squadron in the Air Force. Okay. And they fly an aircraft called the F-15I, which is in Hebrew, it's known as the Ram, the, the thunder. So these guys come out with their statement. They feel, you know, if these judicial changes happen and Israel's no longer the democracy that we think it is, we will have to question whether we can continue to serve. And they said, you know, as a warning shot, we might not come to reserve duty in the coming. What was the response? You had one minister in the, in, from the Likud party who said these are narcissistic cowards. You had another minister who said these are traitors. And you had a pundit who's very closely aligned with the Likud party who said they are like pus that needs to be uprooted. Some crazy. That, that was Bardugo. So I'm, I'm watching all this and I'm saying to myself, this is crazy. Like I know these guys. I know these guys because I, I wrote a book about the bombing of Syria's nuclear reactor. And why don't you just share the title with us? Shadow Strike. If I'm already plugging, thank you. Who were the pilots who flew? What squadron did they come from? The 69th Squadron of the Israeli Air Force. These were guys who, in, in September, on September 5th, 2007, got an order to fall into their cockpits 
and fly off somewhere to bomb a threat of an existential nature against the state of Israel, and they didn't hesitate in a mission that defies imagination. They're narcissistic cowards. They are pus that needs to, have we lost our minds? Yes. And we have. And that that shows that showed me, for me, that was a turning point. I said to myself, Jesus Christ, like we, we, we are we no longer even have the ability to have a conversation. This is what's happened. This is what we're calling these people. There's something messed up here. Indeed. And pretty much at the same time that the country's leadership is attacking its fighter pilots, the Kohelet story broke. What's that? Well, within 24 hours of the cabinet finally being sworn in at the end of January, Minister of Justice Yariv Levine, smiling broadly, told the media that he had a comprehensive judicial reform legislative package ready to go and that he would waste no time in ramming it through the Knesset in record time. That is a very accurate paraphrase of what he said then and remains committed to doing. Soon after his big boast, it was revealed that a Jerusalem-based think tank, the Kohelet Policy Forum, had drafted the legislation and been deeply involved in brainstorming issues with the new Minister of Justice and others in his governing coalition over years. Kohelet, headed by a computer scientist, Moshe Koppel, is financed primarily by two Philadelphia-based billionaires who are reported to have amassed massive fortunes from gambling-related enterprise. And they then thought, hey, let's finance a think tank. Turns out, Kohelet promotes some pretty wacky ideas to encourage radical legal and political change in Israel. For more on this issue, have a listen to State of Tel Aviv and Beyond podcast episode 5 which focuses on what we call the Kohelet form fiasco. In early January, things happened very quickly. One day, Kohelet was bragging about the proposals, and then came the public backlash, which was and remains fierce. And overnight, Kohelet and its leadership ducked for cover and even started distancing themselves from what had been their pride and joy just days earlier. Yaakov Katz, too, has thoughts on that issue. I was actually on a panel with Moshe just about a week ago. We, we see things very different, obviously. But look, you know, the, the, the Kohelet Forum and the money where it comes from, that, that's less important to me. The, the, the issue here is one of policy. And it's the politicians who were pushing it through. Kohelet, what, what interesting is, yes, there was that stunt. But it's, what's more interesting is how Kohelet kind of backtracked on some of the policies that it originally took credit for and said, no, they've actually gone too far. You've also heard that already from Yariv Levine, who said, maybe we went too far. I mean, really? Boker Tov, right? Good morning. Of course you went too far from the beginning. I think that this whole, again, this comes back to the rollout. It comes back to the strategic planning. It comes back to just the whole conception of this idea. They did not do it with any real thinking, and they thought that they could push it down our throats, and the right. Israeli people rose up against them. They, right. But they were experts on so-called, I guess, on constitutional reform and, and legislative reform, and they right. were pushing some of this. Their, their roots are libertarian. They want to try to, you know, free market, free freedom for all, whatever it might be. Yeah. They, they, they went too far, and I think they recognize that at this point as well. Perhaps they do, but they were also reckless and how they engaged in the whole exercise. Legislative reform. 
The challenge in managing significant reform is not so much in the drafting of legislation as in the stakeholder issues and communications management. And Kohelet was clueless on all three, as frankly was the government. Collectively, they were all pumped up on a premature victory high and figured and said that since they controlled the majority of Knesset seats, that they could do as they damn well pleased. They adopted and still promote a rather crude understanding of democracy, that it is all about the majority, period. That is just not true. A majority in the legislature of a democracy is important, but not definitive. The expression, tyranny of the majority, is a cliché for a reason, and all democracies must guard against it. This is why mature democracies have independent judiciaries, as well as upper chambers, like a Senate, to provide an opportunity for sober reflection and criticism of any proposed legislation before it is finalized. And the fiasco spawned by the disastrous handling of the judicial reform legislation in Israel is a case study in what not to do. Perhaps the icing on the cake was the proposed override clause. This legislation stipulated that if the Knesset did not agree with any decision of the Supreme Court, that it could, quote, override it with a bare majority in the legislative chamber. Meaning, if 61 out of 120 members of Knesset voted, they could override or effectively ignore any Supreme Court of Israel decision. Both Kohelet Forum experts and Knesset members said that this clause was no big deal. In fact, they said over and over, and still say, it was exactly what Canada has. Prime Minister Netanyahu made that bizarre and factually incorrect assertion on CNN during an interview with anchor Jake Tapper in February. And they all continue to dig in on this point, which is ridiculous. Not surprisingly, Israelis went crazy, saying that this undermines and directly threatens liberal democracy. The so-called experts at Kohelet dismissed such pushback. That is, until they didn't. After a few weeks of getting hammered in the media, and the streets, Kohelet and others began saying that they'd never actually supported the override. In fact, Moshe Koppel said, it was actually a really bad idea. It was just included kind of as a negotiating chip. That was some disingenuous backpedaling that no one believed, including Yaakov Katz. I don't believe that because the override clause was what was of most importance to the most important member of the coalition, which are the ultra-Orthodox, right? What do the ultra-Orthodox really want at the end of the day? Yes, they want their budgets, and yes, they want their power and their ministries and their assets they have in government. But they're still hanging over Israel's head is the idea of draft bill. And this is where things get really sticky. The ultra-Orthodox parading have squeezed this coalition for obscene amounts of money, hundreds of millions of dollars, an enormous increase in funding over last year. Netanyahu has capitulated to their demand that they not only receive said funds, but that they not be required to teach core subjects in their schools, meaning that Haredi children will remain ignorant and unable to find meaningful employment to support their huge families. They will remain impoverished, controlled by their rabbis, and impose an ever-increasing economic burden on the state. And those Israelis who work serve in the army, do reserve duty, and pay taxes? Well, they'd had enough with this arrangement. Katz explains further. 
By the way, the problem with this money also. Yeah. It's just it's 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 bad for them and it's terrible for Israel. Yes. Right. It's bad because what what it does is is it it just keeps the status quo going. And what's needed here, we have a ticking time bomb. And I don't want to refer to Haredim as a bomb because that's not what I'm saying. But they in 25 years will become 30% of the state of Israel. They need it to be integrated into the workforce. I'm of the opinion, not popular even in my house where I have a daughter who serves in the IDF, but I'm of the opinion, forget about the army, get them working. That's what we need today. Get them into the workforce. Because if we don't have, if 30% of our country, only 50% of them work, this country becomes unsustainable. Well, exactly. If they don't learn math, science, English, if they don't have that the core curriculum, if that education system doesn't change, if they don't have the ability to work, it's around the corner. Those 25 years are around the corner before we know it's it, we're there. Of an eye. And if you don't make the changes today and you wait till you're, you know, right before, then you're gonna have to make sharp changes to the economy. That's terrible. And you're, then you're gonna be in real trouble. I asked Katz if he has given any thought to entering political life which he unhesitatingly and unequivocally ruled out. To some, that may be taken as a clear sign that he will do exactly that, enter politics. But I don't think so. He's been in the heart of the action and understands the cost to going all in, and he has a pretty good sense of how unsuited he actually is to the rigors of political life in Israel today. I actually don't think I'd be good. Honestly, I don't... I, Why? I, I, I like to talk. I like, I, I have policies that I think are good. Right. I don't think I have the thick skin for it. I, I got I to know where, where my strengths are, where my weaknesses are. I'm an Ashkenazi Jew who suffers like all from anxiety to an extent. Crazy? It's crazy. It's, it's in our DNA. No, I just don't, I don't think that I would have the stomach to, to, to go and have to have those fights. It's gotten yeah. really better too. Yeah. It's just not, it's. Yeah. And the influence that you can have, I'm just not sure how much that affords you. I don't know. It's sad to me. I, I want to see younger, good people going into politics. You don't see it. And, and yeah. that's a problem. I mean, it's a problem. Look at look at us in Israel. We're recycling the same leaders over and over again. You Look at America right now. It's Joe Biden against Donald Trump. Seriously? Yeah. I think this is the best they can come up with? Several days after our initial interview, on May 14th, I circled back to Yaakov for a quick chat on the volatile situation with the Gaza Strip. On May 9th, Israel had executed precision strikes and killed three top Islamic Jihad leaders. Several civilians also died in these attacks. The conflict continued for several days, and as always, there were concerns that it was going to drag on and intensify. The level of uncertainty at the time we spoke was still high, but it did appear that the situation was de-escalating. I was interested in getting Yaakov's take on certain aspects of this particular flare-up, because in our previous meeting, he had mentioned that his next book, which you're all going to read, is focusing on the Israeli capability to carry out precision attacks, just as we saw in Gaza. So, Yaakov, it's so wonderful to be able to talk to you again on the Sunday following our longer interview last week. We've now seen that we have a ceasefire, apparently, or we thought we did, with Palestinian Islamic Jihad in Gaza Strip. Can you just sort of help us understand what's going on there and what you think is going to happen sort of in the immediate future? Well, I, I think for the first and the first hand, the, uh, the operation was a big success, right? Israel showed the precision capability that it has created to, to be able to accurately strike 
at the heart of the terrorist organizations that operate in Gaza, and this time it was the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. It did an effective job at taking out the top leaders of the organization, as well as some of their infrastructure. At the same time, Iron Dome had a very high success rate. It appears to be over 90%. So all in all, you look at the operation, there were casualties on the Israeli side. Sadly, there were also tragically civilians killed on the Palestinian side, as is unfortunately the case in conflict. But all in all, this was a successful operation. I think, though, the question becomes twofold for Israel. First, the operation was pretty much a success the moment after Israel took out the three original Islamic Jihad terror leaders on Tuesday morning. And every day after that was pretty much unnecessary from the Israeli perspective. So I think that Israel needs to try to figure out a way to end these types of operations quicker as opposed to having them drag on. And that leads to the second issue and the challenge that Israel has. So that's the exit strategy. You can, you know how you go into this. You don't know how you're going to get out. There has been one outcome of this conflict, which is highly unusual. The Arab world, aside from Qatar, has not criticized this recent operation of Israel's, which strikes me as being quite extraordinary and unprecedented. I was interested in knowing what Yaakov Katz thought about that. Yeah, I mean, it's very telling. Yeah, right. I think it has to do with, it's the, it's the result of three elements. The first is we have better relations with some of these countries today, and therefore they're less quick or, you know, at, at, the, at the holster to immediately shoot. They wait a bit before they condemn. That's number one. And that applies to a lot of things. Number two is while in that opening salvo or that opening shot, Israel did, unfortunately, there were women and children who were killed. Overall, when you look at the larger scope of this operation, the the civilian casualties were minimal compared to the damage that was caused to Islamic Jihad. So it shows that if you're surgical and you're accurate, you are able to reduce also the condemnations. And the third is that, let's not forget, Islamic Jihad is a proxy of Iran. And these Gulf states with whom, and North Africa countries, with whom Israel has normalized relations in recent years, they are no less an adversary to Iran than the state of Israel is. And therefore, if, if we weaken a proxy of Iran, they are happy about that as well. So I think that all in all, with interests aligned and with normalization right. strong and with the ability to minimize casualties, you can prevent people from having to respond and condemn the way they used to in the past. There is no question that the Abraham Accords have ushered in a new era in the geopolitical reality of the Middle East, complementing the common interests among most countries in the region in opposing Iran and its extremist proxies. If you are interested in the reactions in the Arab world, please read the article entitled Dr. Eddie Cohen, Israel's Most Important and Least Known Social Media Influencer, published on our website, stateoftelaviv.com, on May 30, 2023. And so ends the discussion with Yaakov Katz, a man who has worn many hats in the past, including editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post for seven years, and who I am certain will continue to make his mark on Israeli journalism, commentary, and analysis for decades to come. As you now understand well, having listened to him for 40 minutes or so, he is not only sharp as a tack, but Yaakov really does know how to spin a yarn tell a story, and hook you in effortlessly. 
Yaakov, wishing you all the best from State of Tel Aviv and beyond. Thanks to all for listening today. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond podcast. It would be great if you would like and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Check us out at stateoftelaviv.com on Substack, where you will have access to our full library of content for a limited time only. We are truly independent. We don't just say it, meaning that you will be exposed to views from across the political spectrum at stateoftelaviv.com. Me? I'm all over the place, but generally a solid centrist. State of Tel Aviv is supported by its listeners and readers. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber. Each member makes a huge difference. I'm Vivian Berkovich, signing off from deep inside the state of Tel Aviv. Until next time, stay cool, stay safe, have a great weekend.